Welcome to the Philippe Matthews Show at thepmshow.tv. Named the Oprah of the Internet by Mark Victor Hansen, Philippe Matthews doesn't ask questions that are different. He simply asks questions that make a difference. The Philippe Matthews Show features entertainers, bestsellers, authors, thought leaders, change agents, and world-class experts in the field of personal, spiritual, and professional development. An internet marketing entrepreneur, Philippe is a creator of the How Movement, dedicated to teaching people how to move from the mindset of hope to the process of how. If you are ready to take your life to the next level, move from the mindset of why to the mindset of why not. Tune in right now to this latest latest edition of the Philippe Matthews Show, and watch your life grow. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen. We're here uh, with uh, another exciting guest on the Philippe Matthews Show. Uh, And not only is this guy exciting, uh, he, in my personal opinion, he is an absolute genius. His name is Paul C. Wright. Uh, He is the CEO of of the uh, Sand Dollar Group, LLC. He's an attorney, a global business consultant, uh, leading the firm's... uh, uh, operations and international law, offshore asset protection, business intelligence, political and market research, and international trade, management, banking, and corporate finance. So this guy is a powerhouse. We're really going to be talking about some really controversial issues uh, as it relates to you, uh, your money, your bottom line, and your future, uh, and your future with your family as it is being an American. Uh, Mr. Wright works with existing companies and startups alike, as well as nonprofit organizations and government agencies and private individuals. And so the company maintains offices here in the United States, as well as the Bahamas, the Philippines, and Belgium. Welcome, my friend. Thank you very much. It is a pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. Well, let's let's get started a little bit with a background about you and how all of this wonderful knowledge of finance, international law. Uh, uh, came to be. Where where are you originally from, Paul? Born and raised. Well, I was born and raised in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and okay. I uh, went through high school there. And after high school, I actually enlisted in the Air Force. And when I enlisted in the Air Force, that's when I got my first taste of international travel. I lived in Italy for a couple of years and traveled all over Europe and um, Africa and a little bit in the Middle East. And those travels really piqued my interest in the international political realm and also in business. As I got back to the States and went through the University of Michigan um, and subsequently law school at the University of Minnesota, I became very intrigued with international law and business. Um, That led me to go to uh, work for a law firm where I practiced mostly insurance law but some corporate law as well. And soon after that, I actually got called to active duty by the United States Army because I owed them on a contract. I went through ROTC in college, and so I owed the Army some time. They called me up after I'd been practicing law for a few years and said, hey, um, we need you to serve a few years now, serve on your contract. We're going to put you either in military intelligence or you can continue to be a lawyer and apply for uh, the JAG Corps, which is what I did. I didn't want to lose my legal skills. So I went ahead into the JAG Corps, and I practiced law in the Army while I was stationed in Korea and in Puerto Rico and traveled all throughout South America working with the U.S. Army. And that also kind of pulled my interest a little bit more into international politics and law. I had to work with a number of organizations in different countries. 
I had to work with politicians and government representatives in different countries. And having uh, my knowledge of the Italian language from my previous service in the Air Force and learning some other languages and about other cultures and tying that together with my background in political science and my interest in finance, I eventually ended up pulling all those things together and going to work as corporate counsel for a company here in California and subsequently deciding to start my own company. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much how it all started. That's a, that's a uh, incredible journey. It was pretty succinct how you offered it, but that's a lot of uh, work in between. Yeah, it was a lot of work. Um, the whole time that I was practicing law, I guess there was part of me that really wanted to be in business. Um, learning that, you, you know, during the 90s when you see these free trade agreements coming out and you see deregulations of various industries and you start to see how the economic landscape of the country is shifting and how globalization really took root and started leading us in different directions. That was extremely interesting to me. So I did a lot of independent study and research and decided I want to actually consult with people and help people learn how to navigate this new world that we're in and how to take advantage of various um, aspects of the economy and how to protect themselves from the negative aspects of this new world economy. Mm-hmm. So that's what brought me where I am today. Well, let's get into that. I mean, that's kind of a, a you know, it's kind of a, a ironic how we met. We were in uh, San Francisco uh, at the Occidental uh, Cigar Bar, and we had a, a, a great smoke, and, and, and both of our gals uh, clicked as well as you and I, and we had a f- fantastic conversation, and I forgot how it began, but I do remember that um, uh, once we figured out that uh, we both shared the same philosophy as it, in terms of, of uh, uh, finance and asset protection, we really got into it, and I got excited, and I said, well, you know, Paul, uh, I, I, I would like for you to uh, contribute a, a column to the Philippe Matthews Show on a monthly basis because... You, your, your depth of bench and, 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 and you have so much knowledge uh, to give. I read one of your uh, articles that you sent me, and I was like, oh, my God. As a matter of fact, I think it's uh, the, the first piece that's up there on the new economy uh, and talking about, you know, credit card debt in America and how it began. Uh, you know, I want to talk about that. I also want to talk about uh, more about your company and what it provides, but I want to talk about you know this this part of expertise that you have in terms of how did we get here? Because a lot of people wake up every morning and have no clue how they got there uh, <laughs> in the situation that they're in because it's been generational. So That's let's correct. talk about some. Yeah, let's talk about a little bit of the history uh, of this cloaking device uh, known as the American government. Sure. Well, the American government actually works in tandem with a lot of powerful financial interests. And back in the 1970s, the financial interests realized that there was a lot of money to be made by creating debt and by having people service that debt. So also in the stock market as well with introduction of 401Ks, that's another matter altogether. Um, However, with credit cards in particular and debt in particular, You had people who were yearning after the 1960s to, I guess, break free from those chains of 
uh, stuffy conservative um, ethics of the past, and they wanted to be more free. They wanted to be more liberal in their approach to things, and they wanted to feel like they had something of worth, especially coming out of that 1970s downturn. People wanted to feel the power of the rich that they were enjoying, wanted to partake of social advancement and the American dream. Mm-hmm. So with credit cards came an opportunity to live like you were that rock star. You could take your vacations. You could buy things that you never had before. You could um, you could you could just have pretty much anything you wanted as long as your credit limit was high enough. So Americans got hooked on debt and equated that debt to wealth. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. now, of course, the credit card companies were not keen to tell people, uh, for obvious reasons, that debt is what's going to get you in trouble in the long run. Um, They just wanted the good times to roll, so they ran out all these wonderful marketing campaigns, and uh, everyone was competing with each other, and that's what we talk about, the age of conspicuous consumption and materialism. People wanted to show and prove to their neighbors, their family, whoever it was, that they had worth, they had value, they had things. And that's really where this all began in the 1970s. Now, is it true that, that, that you know, it began uh, somewhat altruistically where it was not, uh, you know, when you, you, you applied for a credit card, you had to have certain things to, to uh, get, uh, you know, apply for the credit card, to, to get the credit card, and uh, qualify for, for the credit card. Uh, and you had to pay, you know, whatever money you charged it, you had to pay it right back. Um, in the beginning, was it, you know, the game to, you know, start all of these crazy interest rates and all of this, uh, uh, you know, all of this, you know, undercover, uh, you know, uh, debt management uh, from the credit card companies, or was it really in the beginning uh, just, a, a, you know, a way to uh, free up uh, the, the currency and the flow of money? Well, you hit on something very important here because when credit cards were first started, there was no such thing as revolving credit. And you're absolutely right. People had to pay those debts monthly. If you mm-hmm. had the debt, you had to pay it off. Mm-hmm. Later down the line, credit card companies started thinking, wow, we could actually have a lot more money, leverage a lot more of our own debt, leverage a lot more uh, financial resources with something called revolving credit where you have these interest payments and you have to make a payment every month, but you may not necessarily be paying off the whole amount, and then the interest gets applied to the outstanding debt on and on and on. So this created even greater levels of debt um, that that were not imaginable at the time that credit cards were initially created. Now, people mm-hmm. also realize credit cards were created um, by a guy in New York who just wanted to make it easy for people to go out and have dinner, for example. So people Mm -hmm. would take their clients to a restaurant, and they would have dinner, and then they'd get a bill in the mail, and they'd pay it off right there. It was never designed to be this long-term lifestyle change uh, enabler, which is, in fact, what it it became. But Mm -hmm. when it became that, the financial institutions that issue those cards saw their revenues explode and their profit margins explode. So, of course, there was an interest in keeping this thing going, and that's exactly what they did. Incredible. Well, so here we are. Um, Credit card debt uh, is at an all-time high, but 
there are other things that are contributing to this. You know, uh, what is it? Nixon took, took us off the gold standard in, in what is it, 70, 72, I think it was. Yep. Uh, and that, that allowed the Fed to print up as much money as they wanted uh, and basically just, uh, you know, create a debt uh, and create money out of thin air, uh, but not really based on anything. Um, how did that play into uh, the situation and the crisis that we're in? And then we'll bring in, you know, the real estate bubble and all of these other things and, and, and kind of paint this picture of how we got here. Well, it kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with what the uh, Fed is, has done with interest rates. The Fed has kept interest rates low to kind of stimulate the economy and more spending. You, know, you have to realize that 70% of our economy is based on consumer spending. So whenever there is a loss of corporate profits because people aren't spending enough, the government wants to force people, encourage them to spend. So what they're doing by devaluing money and keeping interest rates low at the same time, they're encouraging people to spend those dollars rather than save them. It's not worth it to save dollars that are losing value. Mm -hmm. You want to go out and spend things. So subconsciously anyway, I don't know that people realize this consciously. Some might, but subconsciously at least, you are going out to spend that money because what are you going to do, keep it in the bank and make 1% interest when inflation is, uh, is well over uh, 6%? Mm -hmm. So that, that stimulates that type of, of spending mentality. Also, with the printing of money, we've encouraged even greater debt because when these, when the Fed is is buying treasury bonds to keep the system afloat because no one else is buying them, they're playing a game that we have to pay that money back, by, whereby we have to pay that money back in the future. That debt that is being created to keep the system going is going to be passed down to our children and grandchildren to pay back. So therein lies the key problem. They're just kicking a can down the road, hoping that with devaluing the, the dollar so much, they can um, pay off the debt at a cheaper rate with people much farther down the line in the future. They don't have to worry about it. They'll be gone. But this debt is saddling us, and it's causing a crisis in confidence of the dollar even greater by mm -hmm. foreign businesses, foreign economies uh, who don't want to hold those dollars much more. So to keep the system going, they again put more money, put more money in the system, thereby devaluing the dollar even more. So what are you supposed to do to protect your, the value of the purchasing power that you have in your pocket and that's in the form of a dollar? That is the ultimate question. That is the ultimate question. And so, you know, here we are now after the uh, real estate uh, bubble. Um, well, first with the dot-com bubble, then the real estate bubble quickly ensued. And... Uh, now we are in what they say a recession, but I do believe we're we're in a depression. Uh, and I remember us joking about it, and I said that I think we're in what's called a digital uh, depression because uh, we've got our Androids, we've got our iPhones, we've got the Internet, and so we are more connected uh, to news and information. We seem to be more high-tech, but that really is just a shell, kind of a, uh, a pacifier, but uh, if we took that away, we'd really realize wh where we're at. Uh, and I guess the question is, you know, what do we do now? What are some of the things that, that 
smart Americans uh, can do. And when I say smart, I don't mean in terms of uh, academia. I mean in terms of survival and and and, and learning how to to move themselves and position themselves so that when the next situation in the economy occurs, and it will, it is happening, it will happen, uh, that they are, we are better protected, and we have, a, we have a shot. Well, you know, a number of people who not only predicted this crisis, but have been protecting themselves throughout this crisis have done a few things. One, they've diversified their assets. They're not holding all of their assets in dollars, for instance. A lot okay. of these people have foreign currency accounts. They have gold. They have silver. They have investments in businesses that actually produce revenue for them. So one of the worst things you can do in a situation like this is hold your money in an asset that's declining in value. Mm. So the recommendation that many intelligent people who have who have made out, as you said, in this situation is to diversify. Mm -hmm. If I told you that um, I could put your money in the bank today, you give me $100, and that at the end of the year I'll give you $101 back, and you know the price of food is going up you know, 10% this year, gas is going up, everything else is going up, rent is going up, or if I said you give me $100 and you invest that in a business opportunity with a few other people who are investing $100, and you'll triple your money this year, I think that would be the place of choice for you. You'd rather put your money there. Now, a lot of people don't know how to diversify, but there are resources out there that can help you learn how to diversify, our company being one of them, as a matter of fact. You can also put your money in other locations, in other currencies that are not falling in value like the dollar. So those are the things that you want to be aware of. You're not limited in your choice to just one avenue of approach. And you don't have to be a millionaire to protect your assets or to think you need to protect your assets. In this crisis, it is the middle class and poor who are suffering more than anyone. The wealthy aren't really suffering. Right. So, well, the wealthy are already doing, uh, have already diversified their assets because they have a higher financial IQ. They long since have done that. That is correct. Absolutely. Um, so, so what? What you know? The dollar amount obviously is 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 going further and further down. I think you had even written in in one of your newsletter. You know, the the, uh, the, the Frank is looking far better <laughs> and getting far stronger uh, than than the actual dollar. And you said it's lost about ninety five percent. Uh, of its purchasing power since 1913, which is uh, insane to me. It's absolutely insane that that the dollar has a five percent uh, value uh, in the world. So, what you do, the services that you offer, is no longer really, or have it maybe ever been, a luxury. It's really a necessity now. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Survival. Would you agree? I absolutely agree. It's definitely an, an, a, something that you need to do for survival. And I do want to make one little caveat to the, the issue regarding the franc. When, when, when I talked about the franc, it was more stable and more attractive than, in my opinion, it is today. 
um, because the Swiss have devalued the franc uh, intentionally, which makes it less attractive. However, there are other um, currencies that are attractive to me, um, and people can find out what those are by uh, going online and doing a little basic research about what is happening to these various currencies around the world. But yes, that that um, that trend of devaluing currencies globally will actually continue. Some will be a little bit more buoyant than others, but we are looking at global downturn that requires the diversification of assets. There's no question about it. Mm -hmm. it, might, it might, in fact, be the only way to save the country at some point uh, in civilization as we know it. don't want to sound doom and gloom, but I think, you know, the, uh, the, the whole uh, – uh, and then, of, of, you know, in mindset of 2012, it's not necessarily an event. I think it's going to be financial, uh, and, uh, and and that's going to be the real 2012. In that, and it will be a new world because uh, we're we're in a financial uh, crisis that uh, even the powers that be are, are are struggling to figure out how do we get around this uh, because the people are waking up. That is correct. The people are waking up, and the Occupy Wall Street movement that you see mm -hmm. reflects exactly what you are saying. Now, we talked a little bit earlier about, um, you know, free trade and things like that. Mm -hmm. Well, the companies that have been moving jobs offshore under free trade agreements and globalization have obviously been doing that to make as fat a profit as they can. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with making a profit. I mean, that's why we're in business, is to make a profit. However, when you do that to the detriment of your own country and to the people who you need to rely on to buy your products and to keep your country stable, that's where you're running into a big problem. The short-sighted profit um, principle is really misguided in my opinion and like Henry Ford used to say he said he wanted to pay his uh, employees good wages because he wanted them to buy his cars and you know you have a more stable standard of living you have a middle a vibrant middle class you have an educated population and dollars turn over continuously in your own economy that also helped keep the dollar strong now when we've been sending things offshore we have money that is leaving this country. It's not turning over within the borders of the United States. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Instead of my factory producing a thousand widgets and I sell them to your factory so you can make a car and sell it to your, your employees and everyone else, those dollars keep circulating within the borders of the United States. But if everything's overseas, obviously, that tax money is leaving this country and it's not coming back. So you're not supporting continuous flow and, and circulation of jobs. And that's, that's one of the, the, the big problems that we're dealing with today and why unemployment has reached uh, such high levels and is becoming what the, a lot of economists are saying, that the level of unemployment we're seeing now um, you know, may become static. We, we've had, we have a new reality now where we're just going to have a lot of unemployed people, and that's just how it's going to be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's, that's not acceptable. But the people who are saying this don't want to deal with the issue of creating a strong economy at home because that gets you branded as an isolationist. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Well, let's talk about uh, uh, asset protection. Let's talk about offshore accounts because you had mentioned earlier that it's, it's not just for the rich. And I think most people, when they automatically just hear anything offshore, their mind just completely shut off because they say, oh, that's for those rich people over there. I can't possibly do that, when in fact you can. Uh, and so let's talk about uh, the, the benefits, uh, the pluses and the minuses uh, of, of, of having an offshore business uh, account, uh, offshore account, and even uh, dual res- residency versus uh, uh, citizenship. Let's talk mm-hmm. about the, the aspects of this and, the, and, and why it's ne- we already know why it's necessary. Let's talk about you know the, the nuts and bolts of it. So what what it exactly is offshore uh, banking, accounting, and opening up a business? Well, really, it's just a matter of moving your money into a different form, such as a Canadian dollar or um, a pound, and holding that in a bank account that is not in the United States. Now. You want to be careful about where you do this because there are some barriers to entry depending on where you put your money. So, for instance, if someone wanted to open an account in Switzerland, you are going to run into a barrier that says, well, sorry, if you don't have $25,000 in cash, um, we're not going to help you. We don't do business with the likes of you. Mm -hmm. However, you can go to places like Canada where you can open a bank account for nothing. And it's easy to get to Canada as well. You can open an account in the Bahamas as a resident there. You can open an account in the Bahamas by opening an offshore business. And you don't have to be rich to do these things. This is within the reach of people that are in the middle class. And it gives them an option for diversifying and protecting their assets that they probably never thought existed. In addition to that, especially if you're a business owner, if you have your account opened or your business registered offshore in the Bahamas, for instance, mm-hmm. you have legal protections that you don't have in the United States. Your assets can be protected from lawsuits and all sorts of illicit activity. The banking regulations in the Bahamas are very strict. It is a very modern banking system, but it is open to people who are not millionaires. And that's one of the reasons why we help people reallocate their resources to accounts there. Incredible. Um, so what, uh, you know, uh, you were saying that, you know, you get 1% back on your uh, on having a, uh, having your money in a bank account here. What are the, what are the rates there of having uh, uh, your money in an account? Uh, and how does that work in terms of uh, the IRS and, and reporting and all of that? Well, the, the, they vary by bank, of course, but they are they are a little bit higher than they are here in the states. The, the interest rates, that is, so you can make two, three percent. All interest rates are pretty low right now because, unfortunately, a lot of these things are tied to the dollar. However, um, you you have the opportunity to make investments and do currency trading, which can give you enormous profits. Um, particularly in this market that we're in right now, that goes far beyond, you know, just having your money sit in a a savings account. In addition to that, when you have access to this offshore system, you can also make purchases of precious metals, which is one of the best ways, in my opinion, to preserve your assets in this economy. And those things can be held in those banks, which are completely safe. So, mm-hmm. so now, before I, I get into the other parts of, um, uh, of the discussion here, 
I, I want people to know that safe deposit boxes here in the States are not necessarily <laughs> the best place to keep things. There have been stories uh, in California, for instance, where the state of California has seized property in bank safe deposit boxes and said that they were unclaimed property and they used it and they sold off the assets and the money went to the state. Wow. Those things don't happen <laughs> offshore in some of these uh, uh, banks where they're not subject to these seizure laws like this. So that's something to be careful of. And then you know, the other part of your question was about taxes. Now, you have to pay your taxes. The United States has been very aggressive in pursuing taxes on offshore earnings. And you, you have to report all of your earnings, all of your accounts, and pay taxes on that. So you should not look at this as something where you avoid paying taxes. That would just be flat out wrong and it's illegal. And you can go to jail for that. So really, it's more to preserve your assets rather than, and, and it's not at all to avoid taxes. This is good. This is good. So uh, the rules uh, don't necessarily apply uh, in an offshore account as it does here. So, for instance, uh, uh, if you uh, you tell me if you open up an account here, it's subject to what your FICO score is. Uh, does that apply to offshore banking? Well, offshore banking has a different set of regulations, um, particularly in the Bahamas. You do have to have. Um, you have to have a character reference letter. You do have to have a letter from your bank stating that you have sufficient funds in your account. So they're really looking for people of integrity and character to open these accounts. And this is based on you know the old British system of, of of banking and finance and laws, and they want you to prove that you are a person of good character. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. But once you meet those hurdles. Uh, you can open your business and your account or establish residency offshore mm -hmm. and have the freedom to move back and forth between the countries with with ease. Also remember, if it's in the Bahamas, that's just an hour flight off of the coast of Florida. So, Well, that's just that's, – I can't see a downside to any of that, especially when you're talking about Bahamas. Come on. No no problem. I, when, when you're diversifying your assets, there's no problem with that. I mean, that is, there's no downside to that. Yeah, there's no downside with that. Uh, but now, you, you had talked to me about the difference between uh, residency and citizenship and that you can have a, a residency. Uh, residency is, is, is optimal. Citizenship is not. That is correct. Now, when you are talking citizenship – most countries don't allow you to have dual citizenship. The United States doesn't want you to have dual citizenship. They may not ask you if you have dual citizenship, but if they find out, you're going to be asked to choose one or the other. Residency is another matter entirely because if you open a business or buy a home or a condo in another country or make some type of business investment in another country, many of them will allow you to gain residency where you have legal rights as a resident, not as a citizen, so you're not voting or anything like that, but as a resident, you have rights to travel in and out of the country, own property, deal, do business, etc. Mm -hmm. So that is preferable because you don't want to renounce your citizenship. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody may want to. I definitely don't. But but it's it's something to keep in mind that residency, legal residency, is just like when people come here with a green card. They're legal residents. They don't have the full plate of rights 
However, they do have some rights because they are like a resident holding that green card. So the same concept applies in, in various other countries outside of the U.S. Oh, that's good. That's good. Now, how can people get in contact with you, Paul, wanting more information on, uh, you know, what the costs are and what the process is to, to you know, start looking into this? Well, if people want to contact me, they can visit my website, www.sanddollargroup.com, or they can send me an email, paul at sanddollargroup.com. Excellent, excellent. So, so what, what, what's next for uh, your company as it's already global? What is it that you want to uh, do more and, and offer more to uh, your clients? Well, one of the things that we really want to do, a new avenue for us, is we want to help businesses, particularly small businesses in the United States, grow. Now, we talked about the fact that we're in this new world economy. And the new economy requires that you are flexible enough to do business around the world. And there are substantial opportunities for small businesses to do this if you know where to go for the resources and if you have someone that can guide you through the process. And I'm talking about the export of not just products but services also. If the American economy is going to recover, it is going to require a major um, – it's going to require major growth in the small business community. That is where most jobs are produced is in small business. So being flexible enough to grow, understand, import, export, and navigate those channels globally is essential. And that's what we want to focus on um, in the coming months is helping small business owners diversify their assets, protect them, um, and also learn how to navigate the international financial and commerce channels. Okay, that's fantastic. Um, you know, something you mentioned, uh, you, you said basically a new economy uh, and really a new world. You know, we I think there's a lot of people that, that still believe that the real estate market is going to come back, uh, that there is going to be some sense of normalcy after, you know, a few years. And when in actuality, uh, that is a misnomer and a myth. It's not really going to come back the way it was. And, and there's a new economy, there's a new, uh, um, uh, world, uh, that we live in. And people really need to wake up to this, that, uh, this is it. That's correct. We are in a long-term economic decline that is going to require you to think in new ways to protect yourself and to expand yourself. One of those key ways, again, is protecting your assets from the decline in value of, of your dollar that you have in your bank account. And another way is to learn how to protect yourself from crashing real estate prices, from uh, continuing unemployment, which continues to surge, and just learning how to take advantage of the opportunities that exist now. It requires a new way of thinking, and we are happy to help people uh, through that process so they can protect themselves. Fantastic, my friend. Give the people one more time. Uh, how do they get in contact with you, your web address and information? The website is www.sanddollargroup.com, and I can be reached via email at paul 
at sanddollargroup.com. Fantastic. Paul, uh, you're a blessing in my life. You're a blessing in the life of all that uh, come in contact with you. I'm honored that you are uh, an expert and columnist on the show. Uh, looking forward to to sharing uh, and benefiting from your wealth of knowledge. Thank you so much for being on the show with me today. I am so happy to have been here with you today, and I look forward to more discussions in the future. Thank you. Absolutely. It's been my We've got to have you come back on the show. Thank you, sir. All right, my friend. You take care. All right. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.